Before we begin, we want to provide a warning that this episode references an instance of interpersonal violence and may not be suitable for all audiences. Hi, I'm Gracie Sarkeesian, the Executive Director at the NYU Wasserman Center, and this is All in a Day's Work, the podcast we've created for you. The NYU network is expansive, and our alumni have an array of unique experiences. All in a Day's Work will bring you episodes featuring members of the NYU community doing interesting work and navigating the professional world. We're excited to share their stories with you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, this is Miriam Miller with another episode of All in a Day's Work. Today, I'm thrilled to be speaking with Khalid Latif, an NYU alum and the executive director and chaplain for the Islamic Center at NYU. Khalid, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Um, So you're not just the chaplain for the Islamic Center at NYU, you're actually the first person to ever hold that position. So can you start by talking about how you went from being an undergraduate to quickly becoming this real trailblazer in your field? Yeah, you know, it was pretty interesting. Uh, Growing up, I didn't necessarily have too much connection to my sense of spiritual identity, religious identity. And it wasn't until I actually became an undergrad at New York University in the year 2000 that I started to explore a little bit more about what those components of my identity meant to me. And I think being in a place as diverse as New York University, also situated in a city that's as diverse as New York City, uh, it gave me an opportunity to really look at religion and spirituality through a distinct prism of depth that I don't think I was necessarily exposed to while I was growing up, where I just didn't have those questions in mind necessarily. It just now started to, I think, in this formative period of my identity, feel a little bit different. And so throughout the course of my undergrad, I got a little bit more connected to Islam as a religion on a whole. And when the Kimball Center went up, I was now going into my final year at NYU Uh, And I had now also become the president of the Islamic Center, which was then a student club. And I approached the university to ask if there would be space for Muslim students to pray within the Kimball Center. And they responded to me saying that historically the university at that time wasn't supporting religious communities. So the Jewish Center, the Brothman Center was supported by Jewish alumni and foundations, the Catholic Church provided for the Catholic Center, etc. And so as students and some recent alums, we crafted a plan to build out uh, and institutionalize NYU's Islamic Center. And really, there wasn't any precedent to follow. Uh, and so I found myself in a place where simultaneously, uh, I was trying to figure out what am I going to do after I graduate? And At that point, I had been taking a lot of graduate level classes, uh, was kind of aiming to do a PhD in Islamic studies in NYU's Department of Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies. And I had also wanted to do a JD, uh, a law degree. My family encouraged me to do the law degree first and at some point later pursue the doctorate. When I got to law school, uh, conceptually it was really engaging But on a practical level, I just hated the idea of being a lawyer. And so after about a semester and a half, it just didn't seem like it was a good fit. Uh, I took a leave of absence, which just turned into a leave forever. And I transferred to a theological seminary, 
And while I was starting my graduate work there, um, some members of the university administration and some of our alumni and current students asked if I would take on a position as a chaplain volunteer at New York University, its first Muslim chaplain, so that the position would develop itself in some capacity while I was still doing my graduate studies. And as things grew institutionally, uh, whoever would take on the role once there was funding and other things available would now have something to build off of. Uh, and so I started in uh, 2005 as the first Muslim chaplain at NYU. Uh, I've just been in the role since. Thank you for that wonderful introduction. So you were really very young, frankly, when you started uh, you know, working in this capacity as a chaplain. Did you ever feel any sense of imposter syndrome being a relatively recent undergrad at NYU or, or feel overwhelmed by this position that was growing really rapidly that you, you suddenly held and its importance in people's lives? Yeah, I've thought a lot about what it was like for me in the early part of my career. And I think thinking about it in retrospect has helped me to understand a little bit about my younger self in a better way. I don't think I would necessarily attribute imposter syndrome to what it was that I was feeling, but I feel more so a lot of the spaces that I was in, I definitely was the youngest, but I was also everything else that makes me who I am. And so quite often I was the only person that practiced my faith, you know, from a visibility standpoint, I cover my head, I have a beard, I look stereotypically what someone would think a Muslim looks like, quote unquote. And I think what my experience more so was because of my age and my faith and the racialization of my faith, there was a certain level of scrutiny that was on me that I don't think was necessarily on others who shared space with me. I didn't necessarily have room to be without articulate thought when I was sharing space with others, that every word that I would say would be looked at through a prism of trying to somehow legitimize that I belonged in those spaces. And my age, as well as my faith and everything that people would now take from their own preconceived ideas and notions, put me essentially in a place where the way that I dressed had to always be within a prism of hyper-professionalism. My language and communication style had to be hyper-articulate. I had to be beyond a certain level of perfection, so to speak, in each of these arenas and so many more, because people were essentially looking at me in different ways. And those were the kind of things that I think were pretty evident in the spaces that I was interacting with that people either very subtly or overtly um, made it very clear that I had to essentially not put on a facade, but had to not leave any room for mistake because there was many who didn't necessarily think that I should have been in the places in the first place. So one of the things I'm wondering about is, first of all, how do you sort of navigate um, moments like that? And how do you stay present for other people and take care of yourself when all of that is happening? I think today I've learned the importance of self-care through experiences I had in the early part of my career that gave every indication that 
I can't take care of other people's hearts if I'm not taking care of my own heart. And if my self-care is non-existent, uh, it's going to catch up to me at some point. Towards the end of my 20s, uh, I actually got an illness called shingles, which if you're familiar with it, whether you've experienced it or someone else has experienced it, at that point in time, um, shingles was usually something that people who were substantially older would get. And I went to the doctor to ask them what it was. And they said, this is shingles. They also said, just be ready. Uh, it's going to feel like somebody's rubbing a hot iron on your body as they stab you again and again. Because it lives in your nervous system and it manifests now on a nerve track. Even like the slightest movement of my clothes would erupt my body in this kind of piercing pain because it just sent a jolt through all of my nerves that were now impacted by the shingles. I had to quarantine for some time and I went and stayed with my parents in New Jersey in the home I grew up in. There was one night I was checking my email and I got an email from an NYU student at that time who was writing to me to let me know about her boyfriend who earlier that day uh, on campus in the Silver Building had been walking with her, grabbed her by the straps of her book bag, and essentially just threw her against a wall. And she said had a security guard not intervened, she didn't know what would have happened. And she's reaching out to me now for support and for referrals and all of this kind of stuff. And I closed my laptop and I went downstairs to where my mother was sitting. And I simply put my head in my mother's lap and I started to cry. Not because I didn't know how to support this student in her time of need, but I couldn't provide really fully the care that she needed because I wasn't taking care of myself. The same way your stomach is gonna tell you when it's hungry and your throat is going to give you indications of thirst, you know, our bodies, they give us indicators of what our overall wellness is. And I went through experiences that gave me indication. I literally still have scars on my torso from the shingles that I had like years ago, but it essentially was a wake-up call to me that said, you can't really care for anybody else fully if you're not taking care of yourself. And I think this is a challenge that comes in when we're dealing now with just work-life balance, regardless of what your professional ambition is. No matter what someone might attribute their work to be, it can't be absolutely who you are and consuming in a way where we stop to now pay attention to our overall sense of self and eventually it can catch up to you. And I think for people to learn from my experiences, you don't want to get to a place where your body essentially like implodes and says, you're just not taking care of it for it to be a wake up call in terms of your own self care. I think those are so many important things that you just shared and so one of the things that I wanted to ask was how do the conversations that you have and how does the work that you do in your role as chaplain inform the kinds of, of issues 
that you choose to devote your other time to? How do you think about projects that you choose to take on? How do you sort of define what that looks like for you? You know, I'm, I'm really grateful for the platform that I've been given that I think exists within certain niche communities, whether that's New York City, whether that's interfaith communities, whether that's Muslim community. And within it, I think a big part of what I do as a chaplain is just get to listen to different people, hear their personal narratives, the struggles that they go through, have an opportunity to walk with them through their struggle, but also then to sit and reflect and say, well, fundamentally beyond being a space of self-expression for others and an objective and empathetic listener, what do I do with all of this information that's coming to me of people's lived realities? And so there's various projects and initiatives that I think stem from that kind of recognition. So for example, over the course of the pandemic, some alums and members of our community reached out to me and said, you talk about domestic violence a lot. We'd love to build a nonprofit that's focused on some of this work. And I said, great, here's things that I can do. And here's things that I would be terrible at. And let's build a team that makes sense and really conceptualize on a strategic level. So we're growing it with an air of excellence to it because that's what the beneficiary demographic deserves. So over the course of a year or so, we conceptualized what we could do, built out an organization that's now its own 501c3 nonprofit called Pillars of Peace. Uh, we're able to have a successful capital campaign um, that we thought would take a year to raise $700,000 to purchase and renovate an emergency confidential shelter for women and children who are survivors of abuse. And in 10 days, we raised a million dollars from more than 9,000 unique donors uh, to purchase that building. And since then, we're able to provide hundreds of thousands of dollars in micro grants to uh, individuals who in the pandemic were stuck at home with their um, abusers, provide other modes of assistance, um, as we're hoping to grow this to a larger nonprofit, you know, seven to $8 million a year that provides legal advocacy, counseling, mediation, financial empowerment, job skills and trainings and more shelters. But I think the foundation of it all is just, again, not wanting for anybody to be alone and to really recognize what it is that with confidence have the capacity to be able to do, even if that's just bringing people together and helping them recognize their own capacity to really go out there and do things for, for others in these kind of times. Our Islamic Center at NYU helped raise more than $7 million in COVID relief funds for people who are in need. And that was from over 50,000 contributions coming in. And it's very affirming, you know, to me, because it means like people are coming together on shared internals, shared values, shared ethics, shared hearts, and not just shared externals, shared race, shared ethnicity, shared class. The idea that that's possible, all it says to me is that that means you got to keep doing it and doing it more and doing it better and growing the sphere of influence that tells people 
that you just got to get done what we have the ability to get done, but to do it with real presence and mindfulness. And that's, I think, fundamentally what it is that I'm trying to do is not just talk about things, but to go out and live those words. Because there's a lot of people who I think are just waiting for us to build what we can't wait for anybody else to build for us. Volunteering and civic engagement are wonderful opportunities to get involved in your local communities, give back, and build skills that will help you be successful in your career in the future. If you're interested in learning about service opportunities or ways to give back to communities not only across New York City, but around the globe, NYU and New York City have various different resources to help you do just that. Start by checking out NYU's service office that lives within the Center for Student Life. NYU Service has opportunities to learn more about civic engagement, virtual volunteering, one-day service opportunities, and longer-term programs. You can sign up for their newsletter via their website and keep up to date on all of the happenings within NYU Service. NYU also has opportunities to apply for work-study positions at nonprofits such as Jumpstart and America Reads and Counts. Additionally, the university partners with the New York City Public Service Corps which places students at local organizations and government agencies across New York City in which you can support and give back to public service and social justice initiatives that are happening across the city. I think when you talk about not only saying those words, but actually living them and the modeling of that that you've done, I think illuminates another point, which is that How do you, as someone who's in the position that you're in, bring people together in this way, whether whether that's through, you know, fundraising or through social media? How do you mobilize people um, to come together over these issues to meet the goals that you have for this work? I think accessibility is very key. Uh, You know, I think the leadership style that gets heavily emphasized is one that is a little bit more Machiavellian of you know, here's the CEO and everybody works for the benefit of the CEO, which I think to me is a problematic mode of leadership. I would rather choose to adopt a servant-based model of leadership that the people in charge, they work for the sake of the communities that they serve. And I think within that, you don't have this sense of, hey, like, follow me but let's like lead from within. And that, especially within religious community, I think can become very hard because there's quite often a distance from uh, those who are in authority and the people that they're serving. But when you can be in a place where anybody feels comfortable sitting and talking to you and they feel like they can have access to you, I think that's one of the key factors. And it creates now a broader pool of individual that you can tap into when you're trying to figure out how to build. And then I think when you take the accessibility and inclusivity and you bring it into an element of trust, people also appreciate that they're asked, like, what do they think about things? I've had grown men who are twice my age sit with me in my office in tears and I'll say, why are you crying? And they'll say, no one has ever asked me what I think about something before this. And that's just a crazy concept to me. 
I would be so stupid if I believe that I know the answer to everything and that I should have an opinion on every matter. It also makes my job a lot easier by me just asking other people, what do they think? Or what are their experiences? What do they feel like is a direction we should be moving in? And I think it goes hand in hand with what we're talking about. Because if you can become oblivious to people's realities or nobody is teaching you how to treat others, it still doesn't mean that there is an impact based off of what it is that we do for other people. And where somebody else might not be doing what they're supposed to do, it doesn't still say why I'm not doing what I can do. It reminds me of an anecdote. You know, my daughter, uh, her name is Medina. She's turning nine this year. It's really amazing person and it's got such a great personality and Medina is very little even till now people just like to give her gifts I think when she was probably four years old uh we you know go to a Dunkin Donuts near our apartment building every so often and this particular morning we went in and my daughter at four years of age is that much cuter and People just kind of melt around her and she smiles, this very contagious smile. And the guy behind the counter, he just starts handing her munchkins from donuts, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, not even like asking, does anybody want anything? And she looks at me and she says, Baba, is it okay if I have it? And I also melt at her smile and I say, of course, just have whatever you want. And now as we're leaving from the Dunkin' Donuts, there's an elderly woman standing outside and somebody leaves from the inside of the Dunkin' Donuts and whatever they were eating, they finish and they simply just throw their wrapper onto the ground, the sidewalk in front of us. And so this elder woman, she looks at that person with a lot of disgust and expresses her disgust and how could you just throw something on the ground And then my four-year-old daughter looks at that woman and looks at the rapper. And then she says to her, well, why don't you just pick it up? And I think that's the kind of mindset that's important. You know, you can either choose to be the person who is just ruining things for others, leaving your waste on the sidewalk. You can be the person that points a finger at that person and says, well, that's not a good thing to do. Or you can be the person that says, well, I'm still going to do what I have the ability to do. And that's, I think, fundamentally what it is that I'm trying to do is not just talk about things, but to go out and live those words. Because there's a lot of people who I think are just waiting for us to build what we can't wait for anybody else to build for us. Thank you so much for that answer. I think that um, is sort of a wonderful note for us to end on as we think about how we can bring people along with us to do meaningful work. So Khalid, I want to thank you so much for being with us today. Um, And to all of our listeners who have tuned into this episode, I'm Miriam Miller, your host. Thank you so much for being with us. If you want to learn more about the services that are offered at the Wasserman Center, you can log on to our career portal, Handshake, through your NYU homepage. 
Today's episode was hosted by Miriam Miller with episode guest Khalid Latif. We're produced by Miriam Miller and Ben Barzilai, edited by Ben Barzilai, and created with support from Mia Beresford, Danielle Crystal, Haley Garofalo, Joseph Mercadante, Carrie Contellanis, and Sarah Rosenthal. That's all in a day's work. Thanks for listening. 